What's up, everybody, and welcome to another boardroom out of office podcast. Gianni, crazy, but this is podcast number 45. Welcome, my friend. How are you today? I'm good, my brother. You? I'm good. So funny little uh, tidbit. The whole season, I've been telling you 45, 45, 45. We get to 45. I realized that it was actually 50 that we were supposed to do this year, my friend. So five more in season one. And today we have an incredibly special guest, a native East Coaster, New York, New Jersey area. Somebody that it's like when I met him, I knew it's New York people. We know we just knew we knew we knew we knew each other. You felt the same thing. Um, he is a NBA super uh, former NBA player, uh, high school superstar, entrepreneur, titan in the cannabis industry. We will talk about all of that and somebody that here at 35 Ventures we're starting to do business with. So very exciting. So without further ado, please welcome to the show. My friend, Mr. Al Harrington. Al, how are you today, friend? I'm good, fellas. How y'all doing, man? Y'all good? Yes, sir. Very good. How are you? How's New York bouncing back? New York is all the way bouncing back, man. You <laughs> you got to get yourself over here. There's basketball every night. We got the Nets and Liberty now. The Knicks were cracking, as you know, for a minute. And uh, the weather's good. Restaurants are open. Yeah, um, I got to get out there, man, because L.A. is still kind of shaky or whatever. So I need to come on back home, man. I know I'm hearing that. It's funny because like it is very tough to keep up with how other people are kind of evolving in this new world. When you're in New York, you just see this. And here people are taking their masks off and you could just feel really good energy. Um, Gianni, I know you feel the same, bro. It's when he when Gianni found out a hundred percent occupancy at restaurants and that there was no curfew. This man celebrated like when the vaccine came out. <laughs> <laughs> I was probably out the entire week that week. <laughs> Been turning up. <laughs> you already know. So, Al, um, you grew up in Jersey in in uh, South Orange or just Orange? Orange, bro. Don't, don't do me. Don't put me in South Orange, bro. I grew up in Orange, dog. So is that there's no North, right? It's just, or is there North Orange? It's just Orange no, no, or South North, Orange. Orange is the North Orange, I guess. All right, so orange is the North Orange. And I would assume if you're from North Orange and you just say orange, you feel like that's the only real one, right? Exactly, bro. We so hard, we only got one name, not two. Wow, shit. I'll never say that again, <laughs> man. No disrespect to South Orange, though. Um, and you played at the famous St. Patrick's High. Um, you graduated in 98. Let me think if I can name one other player that I remember from around there. I have an incredible memory of that era of basketball. Uh, Sam Dallenberg, you play with him? Yeah, but he was one year younger than me. Who was your year? My year was uh, with that played with me was Jermaine Clark, but like in the city, it was like uh, Eric Barkley. Oh yeah, the uh, city was Anthony, cracking. Anthony Glover, some of those dudes in the New York area. Yeah, that's oh, man crazy. And then Kyrie went there. Um, Kyrie, what, went what, there. Kyrie went there. Who else? Uh, Shaheen uh, Holloway. Shaheen Holiday. That was my Shah guy. Started it, so it was Shah. Then it was me. Then it was um. Then it was Sam. After Sam, I want to say it was De Dexter Strickland. Uh, what is his name? Dexter Strickland that went to UNC. Yeah. Then Kyrie, uh, and then who we had Michael K. Gilchrist. Yeah, that's right, Michael K. Gilchrist. Yeah. Michael Nardi. We had a bunch of guards. Like our school was always famous for the guards. Were you? Did you like? Were you competitive with New York City hoop? Because I was obsessed with high school ball around that time in New York. Yeah, hell yeah, man. We, um, you know, for me, a lot of it was in the AAU circuit, like playing against Gauchos and Riverside. You yeah. know what I'm saying? They both had powerhouse. I mean, Riverside, bro, they cheated. They had like Ron Artest, Elton Brand. They had a crew. Like, I mean, I think one, the, my my uh, junior summer, uh, going into my junior year, I think they went like 60 and one or something like that. Like they beat everybody. But, you know, for me, a lot of my rivalries came in the summertime. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Playing against Lamar Odom and all those guys. Hell yeah. Riverside Church. So a little funny story. I got invited to uh, uh, practice at Riverside Church. It was my senior year. Like I was in between junior and senior year. And man, I shot the lights out, bro. I was incredible. There were these two big men on my team, these 6'10 European dudes that they had like, I don't even know how they ended up there. And they were supposed to go play at St. John's, but never did. 
So I'm feeding them in the post. They're kicking back. I don't think I missed a three. Afterwards, I thought I was like no brainer. I made the squad. They was like, nah, man, there's no room for you on the team. Oh, dear. <laughs> I don't even think they told me, actually. Now that I think about it, they didn't even tell me. I just, it was like, they was like, no one over here. Like, <laughs> and I was like the only one over there. But that 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 level of basketball at that time, was it was crazy, man? And um, you skipped college, right? Right. Did you do you regret yeah. that ever? Um, sometimes I regret it just in regards to like just seeing like guys having all mamadas, you know what I'm saying, and like places they can kind of go back to and kind of having that kind of foundation, just that support, you know what I'm saying? But um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, obviously I went pro and played 16 years, so I can't really have a regret, but. That's the main thing is just like not, you know, when March Madness come on, I have like no affiliation with anybody. I just kind of got to watch. I know. <laughs> I know. I know that. Yeah, I, I, I've adopted St. John's just because like I grew up in the city and I act like I went there. Some people think I went there, but I have the same thing. Like I went to BU for a year. And when my friends have this like team during March Madness or a college football team, that shit's fun, man. That shit like you have a little mob around it. I don't have it. But it sucks. But 16 years in the league, man, it, there was obviously should be no regrets. Were, were your parents supportive of that? Like what kind of foundation or your mom and your grandmother that whoever was in your life at that time? Like what was the foundation that you had around you um, in terms of like sh I'm locked in on basketball. Um, I've got blinders on to everything else and I'm going to play in the NBA. So my so my my dad died when uh, when I was eight years old, right? And my mom didn't get it; she, she didn't remarry until I was maybe like fourteen years old. But you know, during that time, like my mother, she worked at the Port Authority, um, you know, so she worked at the tunnel to go, you know, from Jersey to New York or whatever. So she worked all the time. She was always working, you know, um, overtime, just you know, trying to just provide for us, right? And then also she was trying to get us out of Orange, you know, to live in, you know, which we eventually bought a house in Roselle. So. She worked so much. And when I first started playing, like when I first started, I couldn't even beat my mother one on one, dog. Like my mother, she didn't even know Hooper, bro. Like I could like I couldn't beat my mom one on one. So when I started playing as a freshman, she had came to one game and I played like two minutes and literally like the expression of her face was like, I'm not about to waste my time. Coming to watch <laughs> right. So so it went from that to after my freshman year. You know what I'm saying? I get offered to go to St. Pat's. So she like private school. She like, well, who gonna pay for you to go to school? Like, I can't afford you to go to school. I was like, well, they said they gonna figure it out. So they ended up getting one of the senators in New Jersey actually paid for me to go to St. Pat's. So I go to St. Pat's my first year, bro. I, I, I don't think she came to a game. Um, my junior year is when I started to get good. So I start telling like, Mike, you should come to a game. And she like, yeah, I'll make a game, whatever. Then I had to like show a newspaper. I'm like, yo, ma, look, I'm actually good now. Look, they got me in the newspaper. <laughs> so I had to convince my mom, bro, dead ass to like, come watch me play. Cause she was just like, you're trash. Like I'm not coming to watch you play. <laughs> That's, you know, it's crazy because there was no social media. There was like, unless you had a blurb in the daily news, there was probably no way for her to really know if she wasn't coming to games, just how good you were. She had no idea, dog. So like, not until like the end of my junior year where I could finally convince her to come to a game. And then she started saying I was good. And then now she made the priority to come to the game. So I would say like, I had to even convinced my mother that I was pretty good to just come support me or whatever. But you know, went from that to my senior year to where like, you know, I'm like top five in the country and it's like taking everybody by surprise, even myself, because I'm be honest, like that was never my goal was to be an NBA player, right? You know, growing up in Jersey, like the only way I thought out was sports, right? But for me, it was football because I had some cousins that played in the NFL, you know, Roy Simmons, um, Armel Swinson, they both play on the offensive line. Um, uh, my cousin Roy, he was an All-American, went to, you know, went to Alabama or whatever. So I always thought that I would play football because I was always bigger than everybody. I was fat, uncoordinated or whatever. But I had this growth spurt and then moved to Roselle and everybody just thought I was a hooper because you see this six four lanky kid walking through the school. So they literally yep. put me on the team. I didn't even have to try out. You know what I'm saying? But then they slowly found out I wasn't that good. But, you know, like I said, going into my senior year, now I'm like, you know, on the cusp of being top five. 
um, you know, end up being number one in the country. So now my mom obviously had to take more of an interest in what was going on because like even at that time, you know, in order for me to get drafted, I needed my mom to sign um, some paperwork, you know, for me to go into the draft. And bro, believe it or not, she told me no at first, bro. It took me a week for my mom to sign my because she because she kept saying she was just like you got good really fast she was like you know you should probably take more time to develop and she was like you know I don't know if you need to be hanging out with grown men all the time you know <laughs> it literally took like one day I came home from school man and I'll never forget it was a Thursday and like I had to have everything signed up by Friday and I was just like you know we sat and we talked and she started crying and she was just like I don't want to lose my baby and you know you need to go to college and all this and I'm just like ma I promise you I'll go back to college I'm like this is a <laughs> once in a lifetime opportunity you have to sign these papers and uh you know I never forget she was just staring out the window like you know in the living room part and uh she's like all right I'll sign it and she signed it and you know the rest is history bro I started going through the process and um you know it's unique because when you really think about it like think about my story and I feel like my mom was pretty smart and you know even though she didn't get a chance to go to college but you think about other kids that literally walk into that same situation and have like people that have never ever experienced that bro it's crazy because like even a guy that during this time um had befriended me uh going into my senior year and he was trying to be my manager or whatever and pretty much uh after I got drafted he tried to get me to sign his management management contract that thank God my mom had the wherewithal to say we should send this to an attorney instead of just yeah. trusting him because pretty much what he was trying to get me to sign was like he would have owned me for the rest of my life like you know what I'm That's saying crazy, and it's man. just like you know how many other guys have been in a situation like that you know what I'm saying so yep it's just unique when you just think about it and just think about like just people from black communities walking into this type of wealth and different things like that and that not having a real foundation of just knowing how to navigate through it all yeah. No, I li listen, I, I, I say a lot that I think that, you know, athletes, you know, beyond being these like incredible uh, superheroes to, to a young generation, the last 20, 20, 30 years, seeing these athletes become entrepreneurs and harping on financial literacy, they've been some of the bigger advocates and building in these communities. Because when you do enter the world at that age, especially the time you do, there was no real precedent. It was always thought of as something that was a rarity. And because of that, I think that, you know, I honestly think you would have been drafted in today's day, everything else the same, where you were ranked, you would have been a top two, three pick because probably, you know, could have been a for number one pick, but you were drafted 26, 28, something like that, because a high school player getting drafted in the first round was like, that was crazy. I mean, just think about the fact that Kobe Bryant was drafted 13th, right. you know, by Charlotte. Um, so when you got drafted, uh, I, I imagine, like you said, money, to, you know, was starting to come in. I the rookie deals were probably high then. Um, no, they were they right? were kind of low because they had just changed. Because remember, Garnett had just got oh, that was right after contract. Yeah. So then that's when got it was it. like, wait a minute, the players are making way too much money. We never expected this, and they put all the the uh, rookie wage scale and and salary caps and all that. That's when all that came in. Like right. Oh shit. In. Yeah, you got the. That's not. Yeah, that, that sure. sucks when you're on the the one year into that. Like KD was the first. Uh, player the year that you couldn't go right to high school. I right to the NBA. I mean, he ended up getting the play year at Texas, but so you're drafted by the Pacers. Uh, and that was probably for a high school kid. I mean, now I'm talking 1998 Pacers. That's the prime of like my fandom of them and Mark Jackson in that era. You had a grown man team, like your mom's concern about going to hang with grown men couldn't have been on display more than with the Indiana Pacers that time Chris Mullen Mark Jackson the Davis brothers Rick Smith Reggie Miller Travis Best you um Detlef Shrimp I mean right he was on that but team Detlef wasn't there he, he was just oh no Derek McKee Derek, Derek McKee, McKee was on yep, the team yeah Derek McKee um so when you get there what was that experience like early on um and talk to me a little bit about like what you started to see and observe because you're a very curious guy I think Part of what your success has been um, watching it from an outside perspective as an entrepreneur and what you've done in, with Viola is this curiosity and uh, this self-awareness, even hearing you talk about like, I wasn't very good, I don't even know why, you know, that kind of mentality. Like Gianni and I speak to so many people on this pod and you can hear the difference between like the 
people that are self-aware and, and talk about themselves sometimes that way and um, and people have self-awareness but still think that you know they were the shit every second of their life everybody has a different perspective of themselves but um, what what was your kind of observation were you asking these guys questions about life money what Larry Bird was your coach right. what were those early years and like all the way through the kind of you were on the championship. I mean, the team that went to the finals with the with the Lakers, and you know yeah. that whole era was incredible. Bro, man, like you know, I have hella stories, right? But like my first story on this is like when I was when I was going through the draft process. You know, I had worked out for uh, I think it was Milwaukee, New York, Orlando, Houston, and uh, one other place uh, missing Atlanta, I think, and. When I got to Orlando, I had worked out against Bo Outlaw. They had me play full court, right? So I gave Blow Outlaw the blues. I bust his ass. Right? I leave. John Gabriel's the general manager. He calls and say he wants me to come back and work out another day with them. So I go back and I play against Penny. And I bust Penny's ass, right? And this was Penny Penny, right? So literally, John Gabriel tells, tells my agent, Andy Miller, Eric Fleischer, and tells them, don't have our workout for nobody else. We draft him, right? So they take it for the Bible. I don't work out for nobody else. Draft night happens. They have three picks in the draft. Their last pick was the 13th, I think the 15th pick. They picked Michael Doliak. So now I'm sitting at my draft party like, yo, everybody. So now I'm like scared. I'm like, I made the wrong decision. Like I'm second guessing myself the whole thing. Long story short, I go in the hallway. I'm all upset. My sister comes out there, my little sister, and she's like, grab me. Like, it's okay, Al's okay. And I'm like, get away from me. I'm fine. Like, what you type? <laughs> not fine, but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm fine. Leave me alone. Yeah. Next thing you know, the room goes in the uproar. <laughs> right. I go, look, uh, they, the paces draft me. Right. So didn't work out for them, never talked to them or nothing. So obviously I'm hella surprised, but also, bro, my whole family, we Nick fans. So we like the all <laughs> places to draft me was Indiana. <laughs> so it was like bittersweet, bro. Like everybody, we kind of happy. Like I got drafted, but then we like of all places I had to go to Indiana. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so that was that, right? So long story short, I, I my first encounter with the team was I had missed my flight the next morning because the guy that I was telling you about that was supposed to be my manager, he was obese, right? So when the cab comes, he can't fit in the cab. Right. He can't get in the cab. So we have to wait for a van. Long story short, missed the flight. Take the next flight, get there. And when I walked in the room before Larry Bird walked in, I looked at my mom's face and we're the same. Like we could wear, wear our emotions on our sleeve. Right. So I could tell something was wrong. So I'm like, damn. So I walk in. She don't say nothing to me or whatever. Larry Bird turns the corner. And the first thing Larry Bird says to me, don't ever fucking be late again. Those are his not. Hey, Al, welcome to the if team. Nothing. He first thing he says to me, Al, don't ever fucking be late again. In front of your mom? In front of my mom. Everybody, right? So he must already was saying something to her about it because she was already looking like something wasn't right. You know what I'm saying? So that was my first encounter with Larry Bird, bro. Like that's and Larry, man. You know, Larry, Larry Bird that's... did not play about that being on time and all that stuff. Like I got so many stories with him in practice or whatever, but that was my first. But obviously, go through that, go through the press conference. You know, we talk or whatever, but it was a lockout. So we go through the lockout. Um, you know, I was staying with Stefan Marbury in the summer uh, with, during the lockout in Atlanta, working out with him. But then finally, Reggie Miller, you know, called all the guys and said, you know, we just lost to Jordan in game seven. We want everybody to come back and let's start working out so that when the lockout's over, we kind of already in rhythm. So that's what we did, bro. And we worked out for three months, bro, until, you know, until the lockout was over. Um, Antonio Davis uh, put me up, took me under his wing, let me live with him. And when you talk about like why I was, you know, for me, Coming into that world, you know, for my mom and now thinking about the whole experience, that was the best opportunity for an 18-year-old that doesn't know anything, right? Because those dudes taught me everything, bro. They're the reason why I played 16 years. They taught me professionalism. They taught me how to eat. They taught me how to be first in the gym, last to leave. You know what I'm saying? Like, they had me. I was trying to figure out how to get to the gym before Reggie Miller every morning. You know what I'm saying? But for somehow, for some reason, he always was the first one in the gym. But you think about it, he's the greatest player in Pacers history. And look at that mindset. You know what I'm saying? So I would say that 
that's the biggest thing that they taught me was just like, you know, you know, I remember Chris Mullen telling me like when I would get down on shooting, he would always say like, shoot or shoot. Or he say like, you miss every shot you don't take. Like all these little gems, they just drop on you that you take with you and you carry with you throughout your career. You know, is definitely something that I feel like, you know, that's why the, a lot of those players that they were concerned about, you know, high schoolers bringing, being bought into young teams that aren't very good. It's just no direction. There's no foundation. There's nobody there to give them, you know, different uh, ways to think about things so that they can be successful. So, you know, I understood why the NBA kind of took that stance, even though, you know, I would say most of the high schoolers are like Hall of Famers. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we've definitely shown like that we were ready to play. You know what I'm saying? It may have took a year or two to develop us, but that's what college did anyway. You know what I'm saying? Yep. That team should have won a championship too, man. There it was two have, years. Bro, Larry Bird. I mean, Larry, LJ. With Johnson. LJ, four-point play. And, I mean, you, you weren't going to beat that Laker team, but um, they should have beat the – you know, to be honest, they should have beat the Bulls the year earlier in that right. game seven that they talked about in last dance. But um, – No, yeah, that, no, was, no I, that wasn't the Lakers. We would have played uh, – we would have played the Rockets. No, Utah. If they had beat the Bulls, you would have played Utah, right? No, I'm saying, oh, I but, you're talking about the year I was there. I'm sorry. You're talking about, yeah, that's right. You're right. They were supposed to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike and them. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then, uh, yeah, then, you know, the Knicks and all that shit. That would have been the Rockets. Yeah. No, that would have been the Spurs. Spurs. That was the Spurs, 99. Spurs. Yeah, you're right. Yep, yep. You're right. You're right. Um, so you go on. You played on a bunch of teams. Uh, I would say, like, not just stat-wise, but in terms of, like, being able to see you on national TV more, your Nick years were your best years. That must have been like dream come true playing in New York at the Garden, right? Hell yeah, man. I just wish we won games, bro. It's like, it's nothing like Madison Square Garden when you rocking and rolling, man. And you, yeah. obviously I was able to see that with Patrick Ewing and them, you know what I'm saying? Even my first couple of years, you know, cause they were still there and still playing pretty good. And then when I was there, man, you know, D'Antoni was there and obviously, you know, he didn't feel like he had the team that he wanted. And I, I used to always feel like, I just felt like we could have been a better team if we focused on different things. Like we literally never, ever focused on defense. Like literally, uh, you know, D'Antoni would say like, well, if the offense did this, the defense would be better. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, bro, no, like, can we come in and just run shell drill, right? Just so people know, like if, Ball goes here, you drop down. Like, we weren't even doing some of those basic things. And, you know, I just feel like we could have been a better team if they really wanted us to be. But, yes, those were my favorite years. Uh, it was a dream come true playing in the garden. You know what I'm saying? I always say, I tell people for sure, like, the two years I was there, I was never booed. And that was always a fear that I had oh. going into every game, bro. Like, I don't want to do nothing for the fans to boo me, bro. <laughs> I was able to do that. <laughs> was uh, was mom at the games at the Garden? Yeah, mom. So mom lived. So mom went to Indiana with me. So she's she's been living in Indiana for the last 20-something years now or whatever. So, um, you know, because I had got her, you know, after my first year, um, I had, you know, convinced her to stop working. I was just like, mom, look, I'm going to make it. You know, I'm going to figure it out. Just come to Indiana and support me. So uh, in my next day, she only maybe came to like maybe like six games the whole time. But, you know, obviously she came to a bunch of Indiana games during those years. You know what happened? She be that she became a Pacer fan. She was probably like, "Man, I, I'm not dealing with the Knicks anymore." <laughs> exactly. I almost, I almost just cursed, but I'm trying not to curse on this pod. My mother yelled at me um, after yelled, my last pod. She left. Too. All right. <laughs> you know, she left me a two minute message telling me that it's appalling how much I curse. Gianni, I saved it for you too. I, I got to play it for you. <laughs> we might have um, to. We might have to just slip that right into this pod. Mix it in somehow. Oh my God! I wonder if I could play that message, man. That'll get that might go viral. But my mother told me not not to uh, not to curse. So, um, you know, let me ask you a question. I, I was thinking about this when I was looking at your stats. There's like journeymen in the league, right? Journeymen that average a few points a game that sit on the end of benches. There's journeymen that have like maybe a ten game run and keep getting signed. Have to go play Europe, and you see them play for like seven, eight teams. And they know that that they got they they expected that coming into it, right? Then you have people that played on a a, a handful of teams. You played on how many teams in your in your career? Seven. 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 Tell me how that feels when you know there were times when you're looking across the league and we're like, I could be the starting small forward on that championship team right now. I could be averaging twenty and five and five if I got the same shot as that guy. 
but timing, circumstance, because your skill set was you played 16 years because you had the you can't be a journeyman for 16 years, right? There's no such thing. So how was it going from team to team? You went to Denver, Atlanta, um, et cetera, like on top of, uh, I guess, Indiana, New York. But you really were a hooper. Like, right. how was the process mentally for you? How did you have to embrace the business? And at times, was it kind of like, man, I cannot deal with this. Like, I want to play in this market. I want to have my roots here, start a family here. I mean, it's hard. I would imagine it's hard. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be honest, I could have been a pacer for life. You know what I'm saying? Like, I definitely had that kind of support there. Uh, even when they traded me to Atlanta, like Donnie Walsh called me on draft night literally and said, Al, you sure that you really want me to do this? You know what I'm saying? And at the time where I was trying to go, I was trying to go to Cleveland to play with Brian or whatever. Um, and that's why I thought I was going when he asked me that. I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to go. Like, yeah, I want to go play with Brian. You know what I'm saying? And um, he ended up trading me to Atlanta. And I remember I was like, what the hell, Atlanta? Um, and that's when I learned like the grass ain't always greener, right? And, you know, I should have at that time, I should have just embraced my six man role. Right. And I think that like now you look at guys embrace the six man role. I think Jamal Crawford is the one that really like kind of took it to that next level where now everybody values and understand the value of a six man. But at the time I didn't like what I understood or what we understood during that era was like the starters. And you're like, you was nice. You was a starter, period. And that's what I wanted. I'm like, I got to figure out where can I go and start, you know? And then when you think about just like as you navigate through the career, like I always say, like through my career, I always say like I had bad timing, right? Because I came in during the lockout where they changed the rookie wage scale. Every summer that I came up for free agency was a summer when it wasn't a lot of money being spent. You know what I'm saying? Like I've had always had like all these different things, but you know, I think that the main thing is like, I, I never really looked at the league and really said like, if I was here, I would do this. You know, the one place that I always wanted to play was New York. You know what I'm saying? So like me finding a way to get to New York was was a dream come true. And how that even happened crazy was I was uh I was in New York. Me and my wife had went to um Philippe Chow, um, you know, over there on 59th for well, 60th. And we was driving back and driving back to Jersey. We had a spot in Jersey, and Donnie Walsh was standing in front of the Ritz Carlton across the street from the park or whatever. So now he's at the Knicks. So I literally see him and I U-turn. And I pull over and I'll get out the car and of course he hugs me. And I'm like, Donnie, what's up, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, you know, we go back and forth. And I'm like, yo, I hate Don Nelson. If I go back this year, I promise I'm probably going to slap him. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, save me from myself. I'm like, can you find a way to get me to the Knicks? He was like, I'll see what I can do like that. Season start, long story short, me and Donnie, me and Nelly get into it. Five games into the season, like I thought we would. I pretty much, you know, sat out, said my back was messed up. And, you know, Chris Mullen found a way to get me to New York. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, when I got to New York, I'm not going to lie. That is the one place where I wanted to tie my roots. Like, for like what you're talking about. Like, I was like, I would love to play for New York the rest of my career and all that. But I just wasn't a Mike D'Antoni player. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't a guy that he liked. You know, it's funny that you and Nelly didn't get along, or I don't know if you do now, but Gianni, Nelly is, lives in Hawaii and is like the most infamous like he's up there with Willie Nelson and Snoop Dogg, man. So the oh. fact that yes, so they did an incredible story on him on like Real Sports from a few years ago. But I bet if 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 uh, cannabis was out in the open as much as it is now, you and Nelly would have just been like Probably on the level. Perfect. I think that's why he connected with Baron and and Matt and uh, Stephen Jackson. Those was his guys, right? I think they. Oh, I never play. even thought about that. <laughs> Cause he loved those, he loved them, bro. Like love, you know what I'm saying? But like the non-smokers, me, Monte Ellis at the time, like he ain't like us. Oh my God. Don Nelson only messed with the potheads. Wow. (laughs) That is incredible, man. So you you stopped playing in the league in fourteen. So you actually did you played against KD for let's say seven seasons, right? Well, I remember the first time I played against him. We played. It was uh, I want to say I was in I was in Denver, right? So yeah, I think I was in Denver uh, his his rookie year, and we played them in Seattle. I think it was their last game in Seattle. It was the last game of the season. 
And bro, he we beat, we won the game, but he had like 40-something. And I remember at the game, I told him, I was like, bro, you the future of the league, dog. I'm like, yo, nobody's never seen nothing like, we haven't seen nothing like you before. And you asked him about, he always say you remember that. I was like, bro, your name is, your nickname is the future. Cause like, if this was the <laughs> to look like, bro, like, oh my God. And uh, yeah, he, I mean, bro, from day well, one, you just knew he was special, dog. At least I do. Do you, do you see that in any of the new guys right now? Yeah, man, I look at guys like Luca. Like, I, I think Luca's a, I think one, he's a Hall of Famer. I think already, um, at least he's gonna be on, he on that trajectory. I think he can win a championship. Like, I think he kind of got that talent. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's one thing to be just like really good offensively or whatever, but then it's like guys that are guys that can transcend the game and actually win championships. You know what I'm saying? So I look at him as being one of those young guys. Um, you know, Trey Young, I like Trey Young a lot. He's just little. You know what I'm saying? And I think that Phil yeah. is going to maybe expose his size a little bit more, especially the way they did in the second half. And that's always the problem with little guys. You know what I'm saying? Because you could trap them and kind of take them out the game that way. But let's see what he comes up with because he does have a lot of, you know, a lot of tools in his bag. And let's just see kind of what he gets to. Um, you know, from the big man perspective, you know, you look at, you know, Jokic. You know what I'm saying? I think he's, he's pretty special. Um, I think it's going to come down to really who they put around him. So, you know, just the game, just when you just look at, like, you know, poor Jingus, like these seven foot dudes shooting threes. It's just, the game has just changed so much. And it's such a really three and D game. And I remember for me, the first year that I had ever took more threes than twos was in Golden State, was with, uh, was with Don Nelson. And he literally told me, he was like, bro, all I want you to do is keep the floor space. And when you catch it, just shoot it. Uh, even if somebody on you damn near, you know, he's like, I want you to be a threat out there. And when you think about it, like at the time I'm looking at it, like this is destroying the game. You know what I'm saying? But now you look at, that's the only way they play. I mean, it'd be a three on one fast break and they stop and pull for three. Like we would have never done that. Like I said, I like if Reggie Miller played in this era, he might've had another 2003s because even Reggie's era, like we had rules. Reggie had a rule. You cannot shoot a three unless it touched Rick Smith's inside first. He had to throw it in. He had to do his thing, Duncan Dutchman, and then it, it come back out for a three. Now these dudes just launch threes at any time. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> so the game has just Re changed so much, bro. Reggie would have, I mean, Reggie would have, damn, and Reggie would have had Steph like records going. Crazy, right? If he played in this oh. era. It would be crazy. Yeah, I mean, he would have he would have to learn how to get his shot off off the dribble a little better. He didn't need to back then. He just like went. I don't straight. know about that because Clay. Think about it. Clay don't dribble, and look how effective he is. Yeah, but then he would have needed my man Mark Jackson to shake more and get him yeah, to open true. threes. <laughs> and we didn't need to get the open threes. But I think you know, I think Reggie was probably like from a. Uh, of, from a perspective of like watching as a fan, the the uh, eye test kind of thing, where like if you don't want somebody to score, that was the top five scariest players to like root against. So I was like, shit, don't even give this guy a breath of air past half court. Like you knew that in 1998, so that made him different because no one did stuff like that. No one pulled up from half so if reggie wasn't even allowed to shoot before rick smith's touch imagine reggie was allowed to pull from three court like you know whatever it is half court two steps in um so throughout so again back to your curiosity like you know as an athlete at what point in your career do, do you think you started thinking like all right i've made this amount of money i don't know how you were with your money throughout your career but like I know I'm not playing forever. I'm bouncing around. And, and I assume by traveling and playing in China and Australia, like the curiosity that you had was kept getting fulfilled by all these different parts of the world you were going to. But when the career was coming to an end, like had you been preparing for that day and what your post-career business would look like? For me, man, it was all, it was 2008 All-Star. Um, I can't remember what All-Star was that year, but I ended up going to Vegas for All-Star to chill. And, um, my financial advisor had flew out to meet with me or whatever. And it was like last second thing. He normally don't like operate like that. You know, he was just like, I'm coming to Vegas. We need to talk. So he came to Vegas and pretty much um, that year, I don't know, I was just balling. You know, I was just, I was having fun. Like I remember me and my wife went to Europe for two weeks. We shopped, we got boats, we did everything. Like I just, I was just living the life. And 
he had came out and he had just went over like my last six months of expenses. And he was just like, bro, like this right here, you're going to go broke. You know what I'm saying? He's like, I don't know what has happened to you. I don't know why you feel like you have to do this right now. But like this right here, this behavior is not going to last. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in Vegas. And he's telling you this while you're in Las <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> he, he had to pull up on you. He's like, it's not going to work on email or phone. I got I to gotta be, in, be in front of you when I tell you this. <laughs> Bro, that's how I did, bro. He had all the, and we was like, and I'm looking through like American Express things. I'm like, damn, I'm really going crazy, you know? But um, but it was like that time when like it just for me, I had just started taking more of an interest just in my finances, just in general, like just understanding like, you know, what I was paying people, what I was paying him, the fees, all these different things. And it just made me just start looking at just myself as a business and just what I had and how I protected or how would I grow it. Right. And at that time is when, you know, I felt like a lot of things were happening, like vitamin water. It was a lot of different things. And this is where, like, I feel like legitimate opportunities were now starting to come our way for investment and not just the barbershop and the restaurant and, the, you know, that we normally get. Right. So when I was getting a lot of those deal flow or whatever, you know, I was sending it over to my financial advisor and he'd be like, what you think? And I'm like, shit, I don't know what to think. They just told me that if I invest this, I'm going to get that. You know what I'm saying? They were like, he'd be like, well, you know, if you really want to do this, I think you should do some research yourself and do some due diligence on it. You know what I'm saying? So he inspired me to start looking at deals and vetting deals myself, like Googling different things, looking at what was water doing at the time, and you know, all these different things. And that's what started. That's for me. That's what kicked it off for me. You know what I'm saying? Where I started to just look at finance and my, and my money just totally different. And I never got, I, I would say that I never was just really on some like, I'm about to be done playing. What am I going to do next? Because if you ask me what was I going to do next at that time, I was going to coach. Like, why not coach, right? You know, I was already a guy that was liked in the locker room. You know, to your point, like, one, I feel like one of the advantages of being a journeyman is you allow different people to know who you are. You know what I'm saying? So you 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 expand your, your network. Your network gets you crazy, your right? Network like crazy because I'm like, if I played in Indiana, nobody else would know me. You know what I'm saying? So yep. Now that I've been all these different places, and as you know, in this business, everybody moves around. So I feel like I probably got some type of connection to every thirty, all thirty teams in the NBA right now because I moved around. So it's funny. I found like I'm trying to make it into a positive, but it kind of for me it was. You know what I'm saying? No, no, no. From that perspective, you know, I've never even looked at it that way. It's why a lot of journeymen become coaches I assume right. and in terms of like being able to observe different leaders different coaches different um, organizations you know without question there's like a benefit to all that I talk to Quinn Cook a lot um, about like bro you you have been around organizations and coaches and Steve Kerr in uh um, Coach K, you've been around KD, LeBron. I mean, these are the things that when you flip it, the narrative in your head, you start to realize that like the resume you have and the assets you have going into the world are like second to none, right? That network to do whatever you want with, especially like when you build that college fan base, which I know obviously you both, you, you and I both feel like we uh, missed out on. Um, so at that time, 19... 98, how much of the NBA, how many players of the NBA think we're, we're smoking weed? Oh, man, I, I would think damn near 80% the way I think it is now. I don't think it's changed too much. I mean, I don't like to say their names, but, like, I had my rookie year. Um, we were down with second year. We went to Orlando for, for training camp, and the vets called me and was like, uh, they needed me to go get some shit from them from the store. And literally, I walk in the room, and it's a cloud of smoke. And they're blowing it down. And I'm just, I walk in, I'm like, yo, what the hell? It's like four of them, and they're blowing it down. So first thing they say is, Rook, you better not say nothing. I'm like, I ain't going to say nothing. But, of course, you know, the stigma, I'm like, damn, like, I ain't know what to expect. The next day in practice, bro, they balling. They killing. Killing. No, yep. not tired. Not nothing. Like, balling. So that's when I first realized I was like, oh, everything they saying about weed can't be the truth. Cause I'm looking at like four to like four players that I've been looking up to my entire life, smoking all this weed, and they like first in drills, making yep. all the shots. You know what I'm saying? So that was, <laughs> that's how it was for me. Yeah, that sounded like um 
That sounded like, I forgot the story I heard about, uh, oh, was it Last Dance? Like when MJ blew up the spot of his uh, vets and shit. Um, So you said 80% back then and you think it's the same now. You really think it's only 80% of the league that smokes weed? Yeah, I think it's, you definitely got the square bears, bro. The squares are never going to go anywhere. Like, you know, give it up for the squares one time. Like, we, we, hey. like, like give it up for them. So, you know, I, had, I was a square, bro. I was, you know, I was a part of that 20% too. You know what I'm saying? So, we always got a place, right? But, yeah, I, I would say that it's still – I would say it's that high. But I would say 100%, I think, are curious or maybe have at least tried, like, a CBD topical – or tincture, just because I know as being an athlete for that all that time, we're constantly trying to figure out how to feel better. Like that's yep. a full-time job in itself, right? I'm like, I'm taking hot yoga to Pilates to any supplement that, you know, I see a commercial for that says I'm gonna recover quicker or feel better, I'm trying it, you know what I'm saying? So I would think that probably everybody in the league has that exposure to cannabis at this point because of CBD. So what, like what part, at what point in your life, and tell me about like the relationship that cannabis started to have, CBD as well as THC, and um, you know, being the, you know, in a lot of ways, the poster child, I hate that term, but you get it, the face of an athlete that just said like, nah, I'm, I'm gonna talk openly, rip the Band-Aid off this, like cannabis is a part of my life, and I function at a high level, and I played NBA ball, but there was a, point i remember you told gianni and i when we met um right before the pandemic actually um i want you to tell that story a little bit about how it kind of came into your life both for you and for your family yeah so you know um first time i had ever smoked weed was after we had got eliminated from the playoffs when i was in golden state and we were in phoenix and you know i smoked and i remember how paranoid i was that was the very first time i ever tried cannabis uh, fast forward, I go play for the Denver Nuggets. And while I was there, I've always picked up newspapers since my rookie year. Rookie year, I had to pick up newspapers, Krispy Kremes, and orange juices. So I kind of just stuck with that, like, you know, that newspaper, because it just was a way to know what was going on in the world, right? You just kind of snapshot what's going on, right? If you don't watch the news. And when I was in Colorado, it was always something in the newspaper about cannabis, always, always about the medicinal benefits, how it was helping people, kids and people with quality life issues, all these different things. And when my, my grandmother had come to see me play my first year there, and it was a miracle just getting her on the plane because she was, you know, 79 years old, didn't like flying. She'd rather drive or take a bus, but she got on the plane and came to see me. And when she got there, you know, took her, you know, took her bags downstairs. She had me bring a bag back up. It was a pill bag. She opened the bag, she started taking 30 pills. I'm like, damn, grandma, what's going on? And she gave me the whole list of things that she was dealing with, high blood pressure, diabetes, she said glaucoma. So literally two days before that, I was reading in the paper how cannabis cured glaucoma was what it was saying. So I started telling her about cannabis and she finally was like, well, what is cannabis? I said, it's weed, marijuana. She's like, reefer? Yeah, she's like, reefer? I ain't smoking no reefer, you out your mind. And I'm like, nah, grandma, this is like medical. Is doctors prescribe it? She's like, no. Next day I come home, this is God working. Her eyes are hurting. She can barely see. So I'm like, grandma, why don't you just give it a try? I said, the medicine's not working. Let's just see what happens. She said, I, I'm, I'm in so much pain today, I, I'll try anything. So I had my boy go to the dispensary, brought back a, a strain called Vietnam Kush. We vaporized it in a volcano bag of all things. Had to go outside and smoke it. Uh, she had it two or three times and, you know, she like blowing it out her nose all perfect. And I'm looking at her, I'm like, grandma, you sure you won't smoke? You know, she's like, <laughs> she's like, I smoked one time when I was 16 years old, whatever. Right. So take it downstairs. I had a game. So I wake up from my nap and I remember my first, uh, uh, my first, uh, running with cannabis. So I was like, let me go check on her. So I go downstairs, the door's closed, knock on the door. I don't hear anything. Knock again, open the door, her back's to the door and she's looking down. And I was just like, Grandma, how you feeling? And I got a smirk on my face. And she turns around and she's crying tears. And she says, I'm healed. She said, you know, I haven't been able to read the words of my Bible in over three years. And I go in the room and I hug her and she makes me cry because she's crying. I end up start crying with her. And we just talk about like how everything is so bright and clear. And she's just like, she's just like going crazy. And, you know, that's what inspired me to learn more about cannabis. And, you know, for me, the next year, and obviously we named the company Viola after her. But for me, the next year, I have a torn meniscus in the playoffs. I go and have surgery. My uh, surgery, I get an infection in my knee. 
where I need to get six clean-out surgeries after that over like a two-week span just to get the infection out of my body. It got into my bloodstream. I had to use like a pick line in my arm to give myself uh, antibiotics that went directly into my heart ca uh, cavity, whatever. Like, I thought I was going to die, whatever. Um, and going through that and all the pain medication, and I had had surgeries before that, but I don't know, this time it was just a little different, and I just felt, I felt terrible the whole time. And this lady had came up, her name was Chloe. She had came to visit me with my co-founder in Viola. And she started telling me about CBD and how I could use it and it probably wouldn't show up on the test and all these different things. And then that's when I started using cannabis on a daily basis and to the point where I am now, where, you know, it's part of my, my lifestyle. You know what I'm saying? I use cannabis when I first wake up in the morning. My whole family now, my wife uses CBD when she gets up, talking about knocks off the edge. You know what I'm saying? So it's just really been for me just, you know, the cannabis plant has just really just gave me a better quality of life. And now I'm spreading that good news to everybody. And to your point, like, you know, with the NBA, when I met with David Stern, it was talking about what players go through, which he already knew. And I'm like, you know, obviously one, we're always in pain, right? There's no such thing as being 100% as a professional athlete. That shit goes out the window as a kid, right? Um, you know, how do we cope with different things? You know, like even the way that we're built, like we're built to, we, we train three, four hours a day, you know, with Kevin. Kevin probably trains six hours a day. He only plays 30 minutes in the game. So he has all this extra energy Right. And we all do. Right. So a lot of times what we do is we try to calm it and taper it down. What we first thing we rush to is alcohol. Right. So now we drinking alcohol. Now we know what alcohol is. Nothing beneficial for medicinally beneficial drinking alcohol. All it does is dehydrate you and different things like that. It doesn't allow you to be all you could be the next day. And what I was telling and it, and it makes you and it makes you send all kinds of crazy text messages too. and it makes you send all kind of crazy text messages and tweets and everything else right so when you think about that man like what if you know what if you know and you talk about you know the anti-inflammatory side because that's what i dealt with i had inflammation in my knees and my back constantly so that's why i took you know i should take celebrates which is an anti-inflammatory i would take two in the morning and one at night and i did that for seven years bro you know what I'm saying? And you think about the wear and tear and what that's going to do to my body long term. I still haven't found out what that side effect is, but it's something, right? But just imagine if now after a game, my knee is hurting. Oh, you bring me a CBD topical that I can rub on my knee. Or my back is bothering me and, is, and you give me the topical and you give me a tincture or a CBD capsule instead of the pharmaceuticals or the opioids. You understand what I'm saying? And that's what I started to explain to him. And I was like, that's what we're unlocking every day. And we need yep. to continue to have support from these leagues so that our government will now do the testing. Because when I first started, there was only, they told me there was 40 cannabinoids in the plant, right? Now with just a little bit of testing, a little bit of funding, we're over a hundred, 120, 130. So these are all different properties that are in this one plant that we can figure out how can we be beneficial for us to live a good life. You know what I'm saying? And I think that that's where we are with it and in the industry is now we're starting to unlock the plant and I'm just excited to see where we're going to get with it. You know what I'm saying? Yep. How many things it actually can do for us. So what was that incredible word you said that lives on the plant? Uh, cannabinoids. Cannabinoids. And I also think it was incredible how you said uh, my wife and I both use cannabis. Like if, if, the, if you're a kid out there listening and like you want to have a conversation with your parents about weed, use this phrase, I use cannabis. It sounds so sophisticated right. And, and, and right and healthy. Um, and, I, and I will say that, you know, there's, an, there's a crazy thing happening, conversation happening that around a lot of things, right? I think uh, around gambling, you've seen it. Uh, I see your little man right there or a little girl. No, that's my son. It's oh, awesome. that's your son. I couldn't see. He's too quick. He'll be here. He'll, he'll be signed to 35 inches very soon. What's up, yes, little man? Sir. What's up? What's up, buddy? 35, and I got it. 35. Oh, that's right. amazing. Oh, <laughs> I love that. I love that. Y'all um, didn't see it, but Al just did this super fly hair handshake with his son. <laughs> <laughs>The conversation in the last year and a half, I think from a like stigma that was around it as well from a business and enterprise standpoint, you know, you see it was listed as a essential business in the like doomsday of the pandemic. Right. You have been doing this for a while. I mean, like you said, I mean, you experienced it from, 
with your with with viola you experienced it with cbd as it related to your injuries uh, and and the idea that you were talking to david stern about this at that time i think goes unsaid does not spoke about enough because i speak to adam about it and obviously it's something that um us as an organization have spoken about in terms of like I think there's incredible amount of opportunity. There's a credible amount of medical benefit. There's just, there's a lot of things that um, can, can be opened up. The more the stigma has gone, the more the legalization happens, the more the you know, sports leagues embrace it, talk about it, have a healthy relationship with it. But you started this a while ago, right? So give me the state of your business as it stands today, um, exactly what you have, what you've built, and then let's talk a little bit about the future. Yeah, so to your point, when I started this, this is this our 10 year anniversary. So I made my first investment uh, 10 years ago, uh, Mother's Day last, you know, whatever, last month. And, you know, when I did this, it wasn't popular. Um, it's not like now everybody wants to stand on their high horse and they smoke and they for it and all that. Um, but I started off in Colorado, um, started off with a 12,000 square foot facility there. Um, we are experts in, co in uh, cultivation and manufacturing in that state. Um, and we make concentrates and we're really known for this product called Live Resin. Um, from there, I went to Oregon and I bought a 40 acre farm there and we built out, uh, you know, one acre of it currently. And we, we're going to expand out to six acres total. So right now we produce about 10,000 pounds plus per year, one harvest a year. And obviously we need to continue to uh, expand supply there because you know the brand is doing pretty good there and we selling through everything and we keep having like a two month period where we don't have a lot of product. Um, you know, and I went to the farm because I wanted to learn the difference in growing indoor flower to outdoor flower, the difference in cost, the difference in quality, consistency, and all these different things we've been doing now for the last four years with that farm. And I will say, like, we are now producing stuff off of that farm that is pretty close to indoor, you know what I'm saying? You know, uh, final final product. Um, from there, we went to Michigan. In Michigan, we have a 50,000 square foot build facility there. We have a third of it built out. We're about to start building out the other two thirds of it. And there we're vertically integrated. So what that means is we actually cultivate we grow it, we manufacture it, and we have retail, um, you know, at our facility in Detroit. From there, um, states that we are more asset light, where we do licensing deals, where pretty much we provide growers um, our genetics to grow for us, and then we ship them packaging, they package it, and what we do is do all the sell through and the marketing. So we do that currently in California, which is the biggest market, you know, in, in the industry as of right now today. Uh, we have a partnership in Washington State. We have one in Oklahoma, and we just signed a deal in Canada or whatever, where we're going to do vapes uh, in the Canadian market. So those are the those are the seven places that Viola is being offered right now, currently. And then we have expansion through another company uh, called Village, that's our sister company, um, and we won uh, limited licenses. So limited licenses are all on the East Coast where there's only like anywhere from 10 to maybe 20, 30 licenses issued total, total in a state. And we've been able to win in the state of Maryland and full vertical integration in Missouri, which is cultivation manufacturing in two retail locations. So we have a pipeline of about eight places currently um, and growing, you know, and what, you know, what we've been able to do with the brand and the popularity of the brand definitely gets us a lot of um, uh, um, opportunities in other states. You know, we're vetting an opportunity right now in Nevada, one in Arizona. So like the, pretty much the goal of what I'm trying to do for the brand by itself is first, you know, trying to put it as in many relevant markets where I feel like we can have influence um, as we can. But the main thing is protecting the integrity of the brand and making sure that the quality measures are always met. And that's one of the main things is why you can't grow too fast is because one of the things I learned in business is nobody's going to take care of your business the way you are, right? You have to be able to have the time and energy to put the personal touch or just make sure you have strong people for quality control and procurement in place, you know, before you expand too quickly. And that's kind of where we are currently, you know what I'm saying? Like we're at a point where we really can kind of explode, but we're trying to continue to solidify our infrastructure so that we can support all of the growth. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely, I think, for a lot of entrepreneurs and, and business leaders is like when opportunity is coming at you and you've built to put yourself in a position to have opportunity, and especially over the last year and a half where opportunity is just flying in certain areas where obviously so much of the world is struggling in so right. much, so many other areas. But um, that is very smart advice because I think, you know, you have to have like a vision for what you want your business to be. You have to make sure that like the work that you do, if you are harping on quality, which is something that I know you take very seriously, your presentation that you have for your packaging for your product is incredible. Like, you know, it's hard to explain in words, but, uh, there's a video component. It's all very in incredible. But, um, you know, I think it's very smart that you do that because you have a lot going on. This business is really starting to take off um, in terms of like becoming, like I said, more on in mainstream conversation. But something else that's glaring in all of this, which is something you've been ahead of the curve on, is how little representation of minorities there are in the cannabis industry um, and how many jobs and how many um, and how many young entrepreneurs that could be empowered by the same opportunities and getting the opportunity to get licenses. And, you know, I know you mentioned that was something that was a priority of yours. And as you build this company and as you kind of build this brand and scale this brand beyond just what it means for you, um, you know, as a black man in America to be the, the founder and CEO of this company, but also like some kind of responsibility for seeing that problem. And it shouldn't just be yours. I think the entire cannabis industry, government, it's, it's way bigger than your responsibility. But I know it's something that you have taken on as a priority for you. So, you know, is that part of the future as you grow now to really ha to kind of like focus in on? Yeah. So, you know, when I first started, it was all about the stigma, right? It was getting people to, to um, look at the plant differently realizing that it did have medicinal benefits, that it definitely could help with people with quality of life for it to not be in the same category as crack cocaine, right? That was my first thing. Um, four years in, I started to get my footing and winning some awards and going to different things and start realizing like, bro, I'm the only person in the room that looked like me. I'm like, we're all the black people because when I grew up, we was the ones selling it and smoking it. I'm like, damn, where's everybody at, right? And that's now has been our purpose of our company, right? We want to use Viola as a platform to uplift, educate, empower, and give people of color an opportunity to participate in this space. There's not enough diversity. Right now, uh, people of color as a whole, and people of color represents Asians and Latino and all that, is less than like 6%. You know what I'm saying? And when you think about black participation, I think that's probably around the 2% mark. And when you think about the war on drugs and how it destroyed our community and cannabis, they use cannabis. I say they use cannabis to enslave us because we never had grows, right? We never owned transportation, any of these things, but somehow the weed gets in our community and the people that got it did, nobody's ever harmed. There's no issues for them at all, but we're getting locked up for nickel bags of weed. 85% of all drug arrests in black communities are cannabis related. You know what I'm saying? So they literally use this plant to lock us up. And now there's, you know, they're using prisons now to use as cultivations of all. I'm like, how crazy is that? Like now with the prisons that used to lock us up now are the places where it's actually going to produce cannabis. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's crazy. And, you know, for me, that's what it's all about is like trying to figure out how can I bring more people to the table? And when I think about the talent within our community, we look at fashion, music, everything like we're at the we lead it right we, we we we're trendsetters we make things go viral and i think we could do the same thing in cannabis if we give the opportunity and you know i tell people all the time i'm on a couple different boards in cannabis and you know they throw around the uh the word or the idea of lvmh of weed like we think this company is going to be the lvmh of weed and i look at them and i laugh because when i think about these companies you know because i see the numbers right you know they're wholesaling pounds for 1800 to 2300 let's just say right which is a big number right but on the streets these brands that are being built in our communities you know what i'm saying i won't say any of the names but like these brands they're selling pounds with little baggies that are stickers on a bag for $7,000, $5,000 a pound. I'm like, that's the LVMH of weed. 
Like, look at these brands these kids are building. Like, that's LVMH because LVMH is not cheap. I can't buy nothing LVMH for 2000 but it's 5000 So I'm like, nah, y'all missing it, and that's fine. You know what I'm saying? I think that's our opportunity, right? You know what I'm saying? Because I just feel like in cannabis, when you think about the real culture of, of cannabis, you know what I'm saying? The culture of cannabis still isn't walking into dispensaries yet. You know what I'm saying? So those, that's the opportunity that I think is in front of us. And, you know, I'm trying to be one of the main people and trying to put a group together of people that we can figure out how to support these local entrepreneurs who are right now doing something that's considered illegal. But all they're doing is doing the same thing that I'm doing, just trying to provide for my family. Oh, to your point, like whenever to your point about branding and brand building, I wholeheartedly feel that it's not you don't build a brand and then the next day it explodes. You, it's these sub-communities that are attached to the brand that are the ones that are propelling the brand even further. Correct. And in, in addition, just so I can understand the scope of where Viola is in the cannabis industry, like when you say you're harvesting 10,000 pounds, that sounds like mad gas to my ears, but I just <laughs> wanna know what that is like in the scale to some of your competitors. I mean, it's it's, it depends on the facility, right? I mean, you know, some places have millions of square feet built out. Some have a couple hundred thousand and then some have an acre. You know what I'm saying? So in the grand scheme of things, it's actually small. Wow. I liked when Johnny said a lot of gas. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of gas. <laughs> you know, it's actually very true because like in general, you know, I think like we're in the 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 rise of the entrepreneur the you know the sensationalization of an entrepreneur everyone wanting to be an entrepreneur however the truth is like these businesses like you said these quote-unquote people that are are selling weed illegally build these businesses they build these brands they build these brands within a community they tell you the strain they tell you why you trust the price they meet you at your convenience those people are truly actually building like Gianni was saying, you can't just click, like switch a flip and switch a flip and have a business overnight. That's why they become about customer service. And I know it sounds like to someone that is totally foreign to this, they'd be like, you're talking about a drug dealer. And it's like, no, nah, we're not talking about a drug dealer. Like, that's the point. You're seeing it the wrong way. Like you said, it's not crack cocaine. This is marijuana, cannabis, things that are saving people's lives, changing people's lives, like your grandmother, all of that is something that like I think that business now, this big business around cannabis has to embrace, has to understand, has to see the the like hypocrisy and like they too will have to like make their own statement, not in the form of like Instagram, but of like how to really tackle this. You are the conduit to it, right? Like you're the conduit to it because even for players that are going to want to get into this, uh, even for our organization, right, that wants to work in this space. You're one of the first people we collaborated with and work with. I know that Rachel from our company reached out to you the other day about something. So you are that person, and it's an incredible, like, role to take on, but you are built for it, and you're 10, 11 years into it. It's pretty incredible. But I never really thought about it like that, like, really just knowing, like, okay, that that's never going away anyway, by the way. People that say that, like, that selling weed – illegally or having that like neighborhood drug dealer type dude is going to go away because of the legalization like no it's still not because maybe when the duchies of the world become like completely mainstream and everyone's doing on demand but if i'm duchy i'm looking at who those guys are anyway or any of these delivery companies because even though like right now it may be illegal those are the people that know how to read the market um completely um another thing is is like I think the leagues, as they embrace it, have an opportunity to change the narrative completely, right? Like for the layman who's still questioning it, once the leagues have embraced it, the NFL should embrace it. Every player smokes, like you said, 80% of the league in the NBA. So it's time to have a relationship with it because beyond the fact that there's health benefits and it is better than drinking alcohol and Obviously, people should act responsibly regardless. Like, should you be high at work? No. But, like, you know what? Some people do smoke at work, let's be real, and they function at a very high level. But I think there's some barriers to entry, right? The league shouldn't say, yeah, come to to practice high. 
But at the same time, I think when they do embrace that, there's also a revenue stream that everybody knows is there. You know, that patch on the jersey that says weed maps, you know, that's just a matter of time. Um, well, it's cool, though, to be able to have you in our corner. You know, we have this bond now on some New York Jersey shit, but also the email during the pandemic that I know you knew that KD and I were, were with you and that we're, we're true to our word. We'll keep that between us. Um, but I appreciate you coming on, man. I want to keep building with you. Uh, boardroom out of office is like has the opportunity to, to work alongside you in, in, in the conversation and talk about the legalization. So um, I'm excited to have had you on. I appreciate your time. Gianni, any last questions for our man? when's that pack when we get in that pack <laughs> you know every time i pull up i got something for you big dog I got you. <laughs> yes sir that's a lot of guys uh, that, that should be the new uh that's the slogan for our pod that's a lot of guys um all right bro well congratulations viola um it will be a brand name across this country in a matter of years you are leading this revolution, this conversation. You had an incredible career. You're not just a journeyman, man. You were a star. You mean a lot to a lot of people. I know KD respects you on and off the court. All of us do. So thanks again for coming on our podcast. Congrats to you on the success of your company. My best to your family, my brother. Thank you, brothers, man. Thank you for the platform. Thanks for uh, taking the time to hear my story. Thanks. All right, so that uh, wraps up podcast number 45. Um, we, will, um, we will keep this season one going for five more episodes, and then who knows where we go, bro? You know, I think we could do some fun stuff, some live stuff possibly, maybe partner with our friends over at the Et Ceteras, Keddy, Keddy, I said Keddy, KD and Eddie. Um, <laughs> don't edit that one, Terrence. Keddy may catch fire. Um, but Gianni, Good time today, bro. Appreciate you. For sure, Ski, man. All love. All love. And we will be back next week. I think next week we got my man uh, Mark Ronson on. That's going to be fun, bro. One of the greatest producers, DJs we have around today. Yes. And my old business partner and friend. Um, so uh, download and subscribe. Boardroom out of office. And thank you again to Al Harrington. My friend Jocelyn Paget. I'm just shouting people out today. Um, all right. Peace, all. Peace.